to the Very Well Mind podcast. We've interviewed over 100 authors, experts, entrepreneurs, athletes, musicians, and others to help you learn strategies to care for your mental health. This episode is hosted by psychotherapist and best-selling author Amy Morin. Now let's get into the episode. Do you struggle with some type of addiction, like substance abuse, gambling, or social media? Have you tried giving up an addiction, but struggled to do so? Do you have a close friend or family member who struggles with their recovery? If you answered yes to any of those questions, this episode is for you. It's estimated that one in eight adults in America have a drug or alcohol addiction. But substances aren't the only thing that people become addicted to. There are plenty of behavioral addictions, too like pornography, shopping, and the internet. It's likely that most of us are addicted to something. It's just that some addictions are clearly more harmful than others. Simply stopping an addiction, though, doesn't mean that you've recovered. We know plenty of people who stop using drugs when they're in jail, only to return to using the second that they get out. Recovery from an addiction is a process. And to really recover, you need to learn new skills that change your brain so you can function without being dependent on a substance or a harmful behavior. Today, we're talking about how to rewire your brain for recovery. My guest is Erica Spiegelman. She's an addiction and wellness specialist who provides a holistic approach to helping people overcome their struggles with addiction. She's written several books, including Rewired, A Bold New Approach to Addiction and Recovery. Her book focuses on how people can rewire their brains, change their behavior, and create positive changes in their lives. Some of the things that she talks about today are the skills people need to stay in recovery, the steps that you can take to get help, and what you can do if you're concerned about yourself or a loved one. Make sure to stick around until the end of the episode for the therapist take. It's the part of the show where I'll break down Erica's strategies and talk about how you can apply them to your own life. So here's Erica Spiegelman on how rewiring your brain for recovery can help you grow mentally stronger. Erica Spiegelman, welcome to the Very Well Mind podcast. Thank you for having me. It's my, my honor. I'm so excited to get to talk to you today. Well, I'm excited to talk to you about your book, Rewired, A Bold New Approach to Addiction and Recovery. Yeah. Before we dive in and talk about your book, can you explain what you think some of the biggest misconceptions about addiction are? I think, you know, a misconception is that you can't change, that you're kind of destined to this like identity of being an addict. And that's not true. You know, our brain is um, very susceptible to change and we can create new pathways at any given point in time. It's just depending on repetition and habits and creating new habits. And um, I think there's hope for everybody. And that's another thing that people don't seem to get is that we all have the capability of changing um, the way we think our physical habits, uh, our our emotional kind of world, we're allowed to kind of figure out ways of coping and and how to handle things and looking back on our, how we dealt with stress before and how to change that. So I I think that's a misconception is that we're kind of destined to this identity when, um, you know, I know myself firsthand, I see myself as a healthy woman now. I don't have, I'm not that person that has an addiction to alcohol anymore. Um, So for me, I know on a personal level that we we definitely can change. And I think the more that we can, you know, use this concept of, you know, positive language and, and being able to shift who we are and our values and, you know, all of that kind of helps. 
Do you think that we should treat behavioral addictions differently than we do drugs or alcohol? There's so many conversations about the fact that when you, if you're addicted to a drug, you're physically dependent on it and that's why you can't stop. But we know when it comes to gambling or shopping or pornography, people keep going back to it, even though there's not that physical component. Well, there is a physical component too. Like, so when somebody watches porn, um, there's the dopamine surge, just like it is when you're about to do a drug. So again, there, 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 that's the reason why it feels like I can't stop. I can't stop gambling. I can't, there is an actual high that, that does happen in our body. So that's part of it. But yes, I think they should be considered the same thing because there's an emotional, um, and mental component to every addiction too, is like how, you know, we think, you know, I can't walk away from this table or else I'm going to get a hand, which is going to be a winning hand. And I, you know, it's it's like some of my gambling, um, like some of my gambling addiction clients have shared with me, like these experiences too. And, And the same with porn, the same with shopping, the same with eating, like there's, there's an emotional component to that, you know? So I think it should all be treated the same. And from the outside, when it comes to especially a behavioral addiction, people just say, well, just stop. If it's a problem, right. stop. But we know it's not that simple. What makes it so hard to give up an addiction? Well, I mean, I think, I think you know, we've, we, we have a void of some kind or we're, we're not, you know, we're not happy in some way or we're not dealing with a certain uh, trauma that's happened. And we fill that with the, the act act of the addiction, whatever, whether it's taking drugs, if it's actually drinking, if it's actually going into stores and shopping or shopping online, like the act in it, in it of itself is what's exciting, which is the preparation of it. There's part of that. There's the preparation of actually doing it, coming out of it. So um, I think, you know, I think all of that, you know, also has, has to play into like, just not being able to stop it. Like it's the momentum is going, you know, and then also just like gambling, like you get into debt and like, you think you could, the next time you'll win, or, you know, if you're shopping, oh no, this is a good deal after this, I won't. We bargain with ourselves. And so it's the same thing as like any other addiction. One of the things I liked about your book, Rewired, is that you tackle addiction from a different angle than most people do. The things that you discuss in your book, a lot of people would say, well, those are symptoms of the problem. Once you get rid of the addiction, you won't struggle with things like time management. Or once we start treating this, your time management skills will get better. You talk about, no, we should start treating these things as problems. And when you solve the problems around the addiction, then your addiction starts to get better. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, definitely something, kind of the messaging of my book. Um, You know, it's either, like you said, the chicken or the egg, whatever comes first or before it does. It's basically the same though. Like if we put the the drink down, we put the drugs aside, you know, most of my clients and most people I know have been actively in addiction for a decade. Let's just say that whole decade, they didn't have good boundaries. They probably didn't have great time management. They probably didn't see a doctor too often. They probably, you know, didn't have self-care practices in place. So we do have to then be like, okay, this is, you know, I see this with a lot of people, they put the drink down and then what, what do I do with all the people that use in my life? What about like, you know, the fact that I haven't worked out or moved or my sleeping's been horrible for a decade. How do I learn how to, you know, so we need to relearn, relive, like, how do we, how do we set up a program for our lives in a sense? And that's what my, my hope is to, to help people with. So let's break some of those down. Let's start with time management. Somebody that has an addiction, they're, whatever they're addicted to probably consumes a large quantity of their time. It gets, right. That's the definition of an addiction. It probably gets in the way of work. You can't manage your relationships. How do you start learning time management skills or changing your time management strategies 
if you have a, an active addiction? Well, during your active addiction, I wouldn't say to start learning how to, you know, but after you, let's say, put down the the drink and you're in early recovery, let's call it early, you know, recovery from your addiction. That's what my book basically speaks to is, is, um, to buy a planner. First of all, I, I just bought a new planner for 2022. Like, I think that's really just basic pen to paper, buy a planner, start to organize your day. Like what time am I getting up? What time am I having lunch? I'm going to go to to a yoga class. Oh, I'm going to get to bed by this time. I'm going to go to the grocery store at five and cook dinner. Try and like schedule your days as much as you can, because also that helps people, you know, not saying you can't have downtime, but it helps people have something to look forward to within their days. Um, I also talk about a pie chart in my book too, of just kind of like a way to kind of see where you, where you allot your time per day. What are your priorities? I tell people to make a priority list. Okay. My priority is a shower every day. My priority is a walk every day, you know, and we have to create non-negotiables around those like non-negotiable. I'm going to bed by 10 o'clock because I need eight hours of sleep. I'm getting up at 7am. I'm, you know, and, and that's what helped me recover in my life is to, I put myself on a routine. It saved my life. And I think routines are extremely important. And one of the chapters that really stood out to me too was the chapter about authenticity and how mm. most people who are struggling with an addiction don't have authentic relationships. Can you speak a little bit about that? Well, I think when you're in active addiction and, you know, um, a lot of people aren't their, their true selves. They're doing things they don't um, believe in. They're not proud of. Um, drugs and alcohol and, and other addictions make you do things that you're not maybe, you know, not maybe proud of. And so again, there's a lot of shame and guilt around um, who you are. And so you have to keep secrets, you have to hide things. And then that becomes another whole issue. And so again, we come, we become really uh, disconnected and far away from who we truly are. And so authenticity, the word itself means author of your own life. So when we get sober, we really have an opportunity to kind of write the book of your life now, like create your own story. You have choices. You could choose whatever you want to do. And you can also, what helps people become more authentic, quote unquote, is to create a list of what your values are. In my book, I have a list of hundred values that you could choose from. In my book, The Rewired Life, there's a whole chapter on that too. Um, is So it's just, it's easy to kind of start to see like, okay, honesty is important to me. Um, you know, health is important to me now. So those two things I'm going to, you know, I'm going to stick to. Those are kind of my values. And I'm going to speak my truth. I'm going to be honest with people. If people don't like what I have to say, then they can get out of my life if they want. So again, it's authenticity is very important. We can't wear the masks anymore. I mean, I know, you know, for a lot of people that started, you know, addictive behaviors or, or acting out in some ways, you know, um, had to hide it. And so that's a mask, you know? Um, so again, we, we start wearing all these masks when we're in unhealthy parts, when we're in an unhealthy like phase of our lives. So we have to kind of shed those masks, integrate, become one person. And that's got to be really tough to do for somebody coming out of an addiction. How many people know who they are outside of their they addiction? Right? You're right. You're right. And it takes a long time. And people will say to me, like, I have no idea who I am, what I like, what I don't like, like, no idea. So I just tell them to start small. Who are you not? That's the question I ask first. Who are you not? Well, I'm not somebody that, you know, I'm, I'm a nice person. I'm not somebody that's mean to people. Okay. So you value compassion, right? Yes. I value compassion. Okay. Are you a compassionate person? Yes, I am a compassionate person. Boom. Okay. We have one way to describe you. You know, so it's like, it's just kind of going through, you know, I know when everyone access has access to counseling or someone like me, but, but again, um, that's why we have books. That's why we have workbooks. Um, there's a lot of help out there, but just trying to like be, be kind to yourself and, you know, try things, keep an open heart, open mind, you know, make a list of 
things that bring you joy, hobbies that you like, even things that you think you may not even be good at, but somewhat sound interesting to you. Just try and explore. And that kind of lends way to another chapter that you wrote about evolution, that when people are stuck in active addiction, they get stuck in a rut and they're just trying to get through the moment. They can't wait till they can do whatever it is that feeds their addiction. They're not really looking toward the future. They don't have interest hobbies. How do you recommend that people start to evolve so that they, they can find things they're interested in? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, you know, first abstinence, like being away from the drug or the the behavior, um, like we were talking about, but also, you know, asking yourselves, like, did, does, does this, does this, help me grow. Like if, if I am like stuck in this, let's say relationship and I'm, and then this relationship isn't healthy and I'm walking on eggshells and it doesn't feel right. And, you know, uh, it's not really serving me in some ways. Like, how can I, how can I figure out a plan to step out of that? Or if I'm in a job and the job has just not brought me any joy, I can't stand going into work, you know, and I've had my, I just had a client, we were just talking about this. She's been in a job for 13 years. She has like, you know, just, just every day has not wanted to go into this job. It's like, but she's stuck because she needs money. They know her. She's, it's easy. No one asks her what's wrong with her. You know, it's like, oh, we get stuck in these kind of like dances with people. So again, it's like, now how do we push her to see, you know, we need to do something that feels authentic, that feels like we're inspired to do something that makes you happy. Like that's, that's kind of a way to, to gauge whether things are helping you grow or not grow. But I think innately, Amy, most people know when something is not moving them forward. You know, we all can agree that being in an addiction, you know, usually like impacts our relationships, impacts our jobs, impacts our physical health, impacts our mental health. So like we know that that's what's getting in the way, you know. And I think that's one of the reasons why so many people get tired at some point in their addiction. They're running on a hamster wheel and they're not getting anywhere. Right. And no matter how fast they run, no matter what they do, you just can't. You just stuck. And at some point, people seem to realize that. And you made that clear in your book, too, that people don't necessarily reach what we think is the stereotypical rock bottom. You don't necessarily end up homeless living under a bridge. But instead, you just reach a point where you don't want to do it anymore. Right. Yeah. The internal bottom, I call it. You know, it it is. It's it's like, and I say to my clients, you know, a lot of people, and I talk to, I have clients that are maybe not quite abstinent yet. They're not, they're, they're kind of you know, deciding what to do with their substance abuse. And, you know, so again, it's a good conversation we have, um, which is just like, you know, like a spiritlessness. Do you feel like you've lost yourself? Do you feel like you've lost the things you love to do or the people that you've loved? Or, you know, because so we kind of make an impact list of just like, how has this addiction impacted you? So they could actually see it because sometimes like you could talk yourself out of things so easily, like, oh, that relationship, well, yeah, they left me, but they weren't good, you know, or th- it was their problem, right? We could just d- deny and dismiss a lot of things. So again, making impact lists, I think really help people. Um, yeah. And just, you know, kind of understanding that like, you don't have to have a DUI, you don't have to be in jail. You don't, you know, it's like, so again, like if we're comparing stories to other people we've heard, it's very easy for us to minimize our experience, you know? So again, it's like, you know, for me, I just, you know, I always tell people about my experience. Like when I stopped drinking 14 years ago, I, it wasn't that anything externally really happened except, yeah, I was in horrible relationships. There was a lot of things that were going on, but again, it was the spiritlessness. I felt like I was in a dark hole, a hopeless hole. Like I didn't know how to get out of it. I didn't know how to stop. And it was so depressing and it was so like demoralizing. And I was just like, 
I, I know I'm not meant for this. Like, I know I was supposed to have a different life. How do I get out of this? And again, that's why I wrote this book is because I started to like retrain my brain, rewire myself, get myself on a good routine. Obviously, I got help to actually stop the addiction and went to a treatment center. So again, I took all these steps. But at the, at the end of the day, it was that that internal bottom that really pushed me to be like, God help me, you know, please someone help me get out of this, you know. I'm glad he talked about recognizing the impact. We know when it comes to addiction, people's motivation waxes and wanes. They have times where they really want to change, times when they don't. When you encounter clients who are waffling, maybe one week they're like, ah, it isn't such a bad problem. And two weeks later, they're like, okay, I want to quit. How do you help people through that ambivalence? Well, what we do, what what I do with, with my clients is we we look back, like we, we kind of keep a history of the pattern. Uh, oh, remember when this happened two weeks ago and you called me and you're like, Erica, this is it. Never again. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. And then a month later, you're telling me, you know what? I think I can moderate it. And I go, remember what happened back then? You know, and so it's like, I always tell my clients, even if you don't have the help of a, of a counselor or therapist, you could still write down those moments when you're done, like when you're, you know, you're finished or, or how it's caused negative consequences in your life. Like what's the negative consequences? Oh, remember Thanksgiving, I got in a fight with my brother and I was like belligerent and I blacked out. We, yeah, let's remember that. It's so easy to forget. It's so easy to kind of like, you know, blame it on someone else or, you know, minimize it again. So I, I tell people to kind of keep a journal of those things. So if they're in, in like a sober curious point in their you know, drinking relationship, let's say, or using in some way is to keep a journal of all this, because that's the only way that people can really like remember to play the tape forward is when they can look back. Oh, I like that a lot. What a great, I think that works with a lot of our habits in life when we forget, oh, this is, isn't serving me well. Yeah. And those other moments where we're tempted to, to give in, we think, oh, it's not that bad. And we do minimize it. Yeah. One of my favorite chapters in your book is also the one on gratitude and the power of how being grateful can change your yeah. life. Uh, yeah. Can you talk a bit about why that's so important in recovery? Yeah, well, I mean, gratitude, no matter if you're in recovery or not recovery, is a great practice to have because, I mean, they've done so many scientific studies on this when you can focus focus mentally on your blessings and the, the positive, um, you know, the positive, you know, things that, that you, that you have going on in your life, it, it does start to create a feeling of overall happiness and joy, which chemically also leads us to kind of change the pathways of our brain when good chemicals are released. And so focusing on what you're grateful for every day, like Amy, we were talking about repetition to have a practice is what really helps change the brain. Like it's not bad if once a week you go over what you're grateful for, but every day, if you can just for like two minutes a day or one minute a day or 30 seconds reflect on, you know, thank, thank, I'm thankful for my health. I'm thankful for the people that I, that love me. I'm thankful for the fact that I don't have pain today, you know, whatever it is, but to drop in is really the key. It's not just, you know, I've had people also say to me, when we've talked about doing like a gratitude list, they said, okay, a list would be better for me. I think I'll learn better that way. And then they'll come back and say, well, I've done the list and it's, you know, the same things that I've written every day. I'm like, but you're not connecting to that. So instead let's do five different things every day. Let's write five different things. And then those five different things, can you, you know, from there, write another, like why you are, you know? And so again, just getting into like Sometimes people just have to drop in a little further to actually feel the effects of it. But I think it's the most important thing and it really helps people stay on like a positive track. I love gratitude. I think it's such an underrated superpower that we all have access to. It only takes a couple of minutes a day. It's free. It's true. 
and it can be life-changing for a lot of people. And you know what I did too? I mean, I, like recently with my mom, I've like noticed that like with people like, it, especially this holiday or just even family relationships or relationships in general, whatever it is, when I start to get annoyed by the old habit, like she's always telling me what I should be doing. And we've talked about this, her and I have like, mom, you tell me always what I should be doing. Please stop doing that. She doesn't change. So some people don't change. But when she starts doing that, and I start to feel like the aggravation coming up or the frustration. I pause for that moment. And I'm like, I'm so grateful. I have my mother. I am so grateful for her, regardless of her behavior. Like I'm so, you know, and I, what happens is I could literally feel the pressure going down. And it even in that split second, it's just to tell the audience this is a trick. It's just like in those moments when you're feeling super aggravated, try to go to gratitude because it really helps change the, your energy and the energy that you're kind of picking up on. It does, doesn't it? I think that's such an important piece. So thank you for that. Yeah. Well, I guess what, what about an addiction? We've had different people on the show. Some people say, well, we all have some kind of addiction in life, whether we're addicted to social media, the internet, something. Do you feel like a, a lot of us have some kind of addiction? Maybe we don't even recognize it. There's obviously different kinds of addiction, different levels of how big of a problem it is. Yeah, I mean, the word addiction is kind of overused and it's also, you know, thrown around so much in our society. But I would say dependency is better, kind of like if we could call it addiction if you want. I think most people are subconsciously dependent on things, you know, or mindlessly dependent. Like, you know, people that sit on Instagram and for 35, 40 minutes, don't even realize that, you know, that time they could have done a workout, which they've been trying to do. Like, you know, again, we're mindlessly living. We have to become more mindful. Um, and I think, yeah, I think most people act out in some way, you know, whether that's organizing, whether it's just working out every day, it doesn't have to be something that causes a negative impact on your life. But I do think people do have a way of releasing, coping, acting out, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. It's just, you know, what I would say to people is like, does it cause negative consequences or not? You know? Right. I guess something isn't a problem until it causes problems in your life. Right. right. And when you start to experience problems because of it, that's a red flag. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So a lot of people listening to this are probably going to say that they were looking up content or they were interested in this because they have a loved one who has an addiction. Mm -hmm. How do you support someone when you know that there's somebody in your life who's battling an addiction? What kind of strategies do you recommend for them? I mean, I, I always say to like use loving language, number one. Um, so when you're going to confront somebody or you're going to talk about it or you're going to say like, you know, my son doesn't want me to mention it. He doesn't want me to, you know, doesn't matter. Check in about it in a loving way. Hey, I noticed that you were a little bit, uh, you know, low on energy last week. Were you okay? How's it going? Not, are you using, you know, it's like, you know, try to say, hey, I feel that you were a little bit low energy. I statements are very important when you're going to be talking to somebody too in a loving way show concern, express your love. Um, you know, there's a lot of programs that help um, Al-Anon, that help, you know, the family members of, of loved ones that are in, in active addiction. Um, and they don't always have all the answers too. So, you know, some of them will say, don't, you know, don't enable your loved one. Don't give them anything. Don't let them in your house. Let them go on the street. That's for every individual to discern, like to, to make that decision yourself. Don't listen to what other people say. You know, you, you know, your loved one best, you know, the relationship you have. Yes. Don't enable them and give them money for drugs. But again, always offer treatment, always offer help because I've had clients where, you know, parents will say, oh, I'm done. I'm done. This has been the 10th time, 10th rehab, but guess what? I've seen clients the 11th time 
they actually send to therapists, they get it and they get sober. And I have a friend like that. The 16th time he actually got treatment, he got sober. Now he owns treatment centers and he has kids and he's been sober for, you know, over 15 years and has a great life. So it's again, don't give up hope. Um, don't think like your loved one is hopeless, but that's not true, you know, again. And so you just have to be careful who you're listening to. I would Why say. do you think it is that treatment often doesn't work the first time around? Because people aren't ready. I mean, you can't be forced into treatment. Like you can't, your, your mother can't tell you to go to treatment. Your husband can't tell you to go to treatment. You can't, you, you can't do it for someone else. Um, you have to really be ready to do it for yourself. So I think that's what happens a lot of the times. The person's just not ready yet. It's not to say that the, the experience didn't give them, you know, some wisdom, didn't give them, didn't teach them anything. I'm, I'm sure some of the time it did. And that's probably what led to their, you know, recovery at the end of the day is that they actually learned something. But um, you know, just because something, you know, just because like you try to get on a diet one time and it doesn't work doesn't mean you don't try, you know? <laughs> right. For somebody who maybe says, okay, I, I do have a problem and I want to get help. Really recommend that they start. I think when you look online, it's confusing. There's yeah. tons of websites about therapy and then you see stuff about rehab or about getting yeah. inpatient help versus outpatient treatment. And people just, I think get overwhelmed fairly easily. Yeah. And then ads pop up, which sometimes isn't helpful either when you're sorting through and you're really researching something and you get a million ads about what you of should course. be doing. Yeah. I think if someone needs to detox, if they're physically addicted to a substance um, and it's dangerous for them to to do this on their own, to, to reach out to a detox center, pretty much every detox center will take any kind of insurance and they will also take without insurance. So that number one, I'm just putting out there just for safety purposes is that, you know, we can't detox from certain drugs by ourselves and alcohol because you could die. Um, so I would go for a detox. If you're somebody that wants help, a treatment center would be probably the best route. Um, there is so many treatment centers, but there's also great online platforms that kind of rank treatment centers that you can also put in your insurance and see what treatment centers come up that your insurance will pay for. Um, and then books are really great. If you just want to like learn about God, what is this? What is this like feeling I'm having that I'm I may be dependent on something, or maybe my drinking is becoming too reoccurring, and I just don't want to do this every night. Like, how can I learn more about it? Podcasts are great, books are great, um, and then you know, reaching out to people like me, counselors and therapists in this field, um, somebody's bound to be able to help you. You know, and I think we also could offer a lot more guidance depending on your individual situation. If you tell me, I do, you know. I live in the middle of nowhere or I live in a big city or I live here. I could, you know, I'm very connected with people from all over the country in this industry. So I would usually help my client figure out a pathway forward, you know? Yes. Thank you for sharing all that because I think it does get overwhelming and confusing. We know yeah. plenty of people do quit on their own through self-help strategies. They find books, podcasts, or they go to support Amy. group meetings. Yeah. And they figure out, okay, this is what's my path to healing, but other people have things that need to be healed underneath that and an anxiety disorder, depression, yeah. trauma, things like that, that they need more intensive treatment for. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And that's where I think, you know, therapy is probably the best route. Um, and I know not everyone has access to it, but listen, like I, I'm a hundred percent online these days. All of my clients I see through zoom, all of my clients I see through FaceTime or phone sessions, and it's very intimate. And it works. So again, it's like, you don't have to drive somewhere anymore. They've got telehealth is really like, I think helped a lot of people 
I think so too. As a therapist, I used to have the bias that seeing somebody online wasn't going to be as effective as seeing people face to face. And then I tested a whole bunch of online therapy services and I thought, oh, this is actually quite good for somebody, whether it's, you know, video chatting or uh, for people that just enjoy writing, if you can text or message a therapist, could be quite effective as well. Yeah. I mean, but just now I'm I'm looking at your, your, your body language. I'm, I'm looking at your eyes. Like I could, I could see you. It's not like you don't have contact with that person. So I think it's been, at least for my clients, I've gotten a really lot of good feedback. Because it's, it's especially like, I live in Los Angeles, but a huge metropolitan area. And I live 40 minutes outside of LA. No one's going to drive to come see me, right, <laughs> you know, right. on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. How do you recommend people take that first step? I think the first step is usually the scariest where somebody says, okay, maybe I don't have this. I need help. But how do you encourage them to say, yeah, reach out to somebody and take that step? Well, I mean, you know, like Albert Einstein said, the the the, the thinking that got you to the problem is not the thinking that's going to get you out of the problem. So we have to really like push ourselves, have the courage to reach out to a counselor, to a therapist, to a hotline, to an AA, to a, a support meeting, or, you know, just to show up somewhere. Because once you kind of make that initial call, show up to a meeting, there's also Zoom meetings online. People do rewired Zoom meetings. There's a rewired community now that's come from my books and my my program. And somebody could show up there and there's amazing people in these groups and all of them would help, you know, like literally. So it's just just pushing yourselves to join a community to connect and like let let people help you. Just open yourself up to that. I'm glad you brought that up too about, can you tell us uh, before we end about what services and things people can uh, learn for how they can learn more about you? Yeah. Yeah. So all, all my information is on ericaspiegelman.com. Um, I have, uh, information, you know, for my books, for my counseling. And then also we have, I have a podcast called rewiring your life, um, that airs every Wednesday. Um, and there's, you can always fill out a contact form to contact me. I'm happy to answer questions for people. I'm happy to, to do a 15 minute free consultation call and figure out what, what the best path would be for them. Um, so I'm totally accessible. Um, and yeah, that's where everything kind of is centered at. Thank you. We'll link to all of that in our show notes too. So people can yeah, find you. Yeah. And I have a program now that's, that's going to be out next week. So it's, a, it's an online educational course. Um, it's, go at your own pace, but it's 10 modules and it discusses authenticity, honesty, time management, boundaries, all of it. And it teaches it and there's videos. And so it's a really nice way for people to, maybe if they don't have access to treatment, they could kind of learn like kind of a comprehensive amount of information at once. Great. So one last question for you, for somebody who's listening and they are battling an addiction of some sort, what would be your parting words of wisdom for them? Um, that there's hope that there's hope that they are capable of change, that they have the courage to do that in them. I know that they do. And that, you know, uh, it's, it, it may feel a little lonely at times, but it will get better and better and better once we get on that path of recovery. Honestly, I've seen miracles happen. Thank you. Yeah. Welcome to The Therapist Take. This is the part of the show where I'll break down Erica's mental strength building strategies and share how you can apply them to your own life. Here are three of Erica's strategies that I highly recommend. Number one, create an impact list. Erica suggested creating a list of all the ways in which your addiction or unhealthy habits are affecting you. Seeing the negative consequences in one place might move your motivation needle just a little bit more, and it could inspire you to change. In addition to writing down the harmful side effects, it's also helpful sometimes to write down what you get out of an unhealthy habit. 
Do you feel braver in social situations? Does it distract you from your loneliness? Does it help you feel happy? Clearly, you wouldn't reach for an unhealthy habit unless it serves some sort of purpose in your life. Knowing what it does for you might help you find healthier alternatives. You might discover going to the gym also boosts your mood. Or spending time with friends when you're sober can also help you feel happy too. Confronting the costs and benefits of a habit can be kind of scary. It's tough to come to terms with what something is doing to your life. But it's a powerful exercise that we often do in the therapy office. So give it a try. Get out a piece of paper and write down what you gain from a habit as well as what you're losing. Number two, become more mindful of your habits. Erica talked about how often our habits become so ingrained that we don't even notice we're doing them. Becoming more mindful of what we're doing can help us take better control over our time and our lives. This is important. I find a lot of people underestimate how much time they spend doing a certain habit. Just increasing their awareness is often enough to help them cut back. As part of a therapy assignment, I might ask someone to write down how many cigarettes a day they smoke. We might take that number of cigarettes and figure out the number of minutes they spend smoking. We'll say 10 minutes per cigarette. Then we do the math to figure out how many hours each day is taken up with smoking. Someone might see that on paper and then think about what they'd rather be doing with those two hours every day. It might help them see that while they originally started smoking to relieve their stress, spending two hours per day smoking makes it really hard to get anything done. And ultimately, that increases their stress level. Try this as an experiment. Just keep track of how many times or how many minutes you engage in something that you might be addicted to. Then see what happens. The act of tracking it might be enough to change your behavior. And number three, consume information that you find helpful. Erica talked about several different strategies that you can use to learn and grow. There are lots of ways to recover from an addiction. Therapy, rehab, and medication help some people. Other people, though, quit without any formal treatment. You might find a support group online, or you might find informal conversations with people on an app like Reddit helps you connect with others who understand your struggles. You can read books, listen to podcasts, hire a coach, and discover websites that help too. But you won't know what works for you until you try. Experiment with different strategies to discover what helps you become the best version of yourself. So those are three of Erica's strategies that I highly recommend. Create an impact list become more mindful of your habits, and consume information in a way that you find helpful. If you want to learn more of Erica's tips, check out her book, Rewired. It's filled with lots of useful strategies that can help you throughout your process of recovery. Thank you for listening to the Very Well Mind podcast. If you found this episode informative, please share the episode with your friends and family and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the Very Well Mind podcast, you can head to verywellmind.com slash podcasts.